Coming up on Mayo Clinic Q&A. COVID-19 researcher Dr. Greg Poland answers your coronavirus questions. I continue to believe since we have not reached the peak of this yet, I think we are in for this over months, not weeks. What should you disinfect and how often should you do it? You have a much uh, easier job in your home with cleaning your hands. After that, it is, uh, of course, your telephone. Can you order takeout food while you're sheltering in place? Takeout food and even ordering groceries for high-risk people is a smart idea. Should we be reorganizing our summer schedules? Uh, Would I fly to Italy or China uh, this summer? No. What can we learn from how other countries are combating the COVID-19 outbreak? New Rochelle, New York, they actually made it a containment area, about one mile square, and they've seen a precipitous fall in cases, but it works. The answers to your coronavirus questions. My motto is we really have to turn from a me culture to a we culture. Next on Mayo Clinic Q&A. Welcome, everyone. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are with Dr. Greg Poland, infectious disease specialist and vaccine expert at the Mayo Clinic for another update on the COVID-19 disease. Dr. Poland, good to talk to you again. Yes, always happy to be here. And hopefully those, this won't last too long, but we don't know how long, do we? No, we don't. And, uh, you know, I, as we've talked a bit uh, before, there's this lag period between what we see and what happens two weeks from now. So uh, I, I continue to believe, since we have not reached the peak of this yet, nor have we seen the spread from the large epicenters like New York and Washington happen with their full force to other areas. Um, I think we are in for this over months, not weeks. Wow. We're recording this interview on March 25th, and the first question that we have is more a comment from a YouTube viewer who said, speaking of spread, you and Dr. Shives are too close. And so just so that you know, Dr. Poland, we are no longer close, and Dr. <laughs> Shives has this tape it measure. Said, why are you not practicing social distancing when recording? And you know what? That is a good question, and we are you remiss know? for not practicing what we've Bra- been preaching. Bra- bravo. I mean, I've even watched you guys and it didn't enter my mind because I'm right. so used to that setting. And Tracy sometimes forgets that I'm at high risk for this COVID-19. Yeah. So uh, she stays over there. I stay over <laughs> here. Good question. Thanks for uh, alerting us to that. All right. 55,000 cases so far. 26,000 of those in New York. 809 deaths. About what you expected? In the U.S., yes. That's a case fatality rate of about 1.3 or so percent. Very different than the world, which is at 4.5%. Very different than Italy, which is uh, closer to 8%. So in that respect, we're doing well. The one thing that I do worry about is the idea that, okay, people have kind of been hunkered down for maybe a week or two, and they're already starting to say, well, maybe this will just be another week. I cannot see. I cannot see that that will be the case. We have not hit the peak yet. We have we have longer to go with this. And isn't the case that once we hit that peak, then 14 days we have to wait or 12 days? We need to have some sort of timer in our head. Yeah, you're, you're thinking in the right direction, but it, it really works this way. It's 14 to 28 days after 
we see a sharp downturn or even elimination of cases, if you want to be really safe, before you relax those restrictions. All right. Another question from a listener. What items in my home or office should be disinfected? Yeah, I think um, we'll, we'll maybe start this way. Um, you have a much uh, easier job in your home, assuming nobody's infected, with cleaning your hands when you come into your house. So first thing you do is clean your hands. After that, it is, uh, of course, your telephone. We touch our cell phones uh, all day long, no matter where we are. We're probably contaminating them. The keyboard of your computer, anything that you touch regularly, the bathroom and sink faucet, doorknobs in and out of your home, those are, the, those are the areas that are touched by everybody multiple times a day. Can you order takeout food while you're sheltering in place, Dr. Poland? Yes. Um, and I actually think that um, takeout food and even ordering groceries for high-risk people is a smart idea. Um, does it completely eliminate the risk? Nothing can or will, but it diminishes the, the risk. And as we've talked about before, what you're really trying to do is put layers of protection around you, each one decreasing your risk so that in some, your total risk is as low as you can feasibly drive it. All right, next question. Is it okay to eat in a restaurant if you practice social distancing? Yeah, I think the concern there is several fold. Number one, um, you have you have grabbed the doorknob to enter the restaurant. You have touched the table. You don't know about the silverware. You have touched a menu. You have somebody else uh, preparing and touching your food, carrying it to you. I've seen waiters carry a, a glass of fluid uh, to waiting uh, uh, people in the restaurant with their finger or their thumb inside the glass. Um, so you just you're adding risk when you don't need to add risk. And in some areas, of course, the uh, the governors or the mayors have shut down uh, restaurant uh, in in person eating. Our next question comes from someone who's thinking about summertime and wants to know if they should cancel their summertime travel plans. Yeah, I think depending on, on what they're thinking of, uh, would I fly to Italy uh, this summer? No. Uh, or China? No. Uh, if they're talking about, well, we're going to get in the car and drive eight hours to see, you know, uh, my healthy adult child and grandchild, I think it's too early to know, but I wouldn't necessarily put those plans, uh, cancel those plans. I'd just put them on hold and watch and wait. Just pencil them in for now. <laughs> yeah, that's All right. a good way to put it. Next question. How long can the virus live on different surfaces and also in the air? This is a really good question. And, and, and let me explain the uh, roughly 23 studies that have been done. The latest one that came out in the New England Journal a week or so ago, uh, and, and people have to be careful to interpret this, they put together idealized conditions for a virus, conditions which generally don't exist. And they kept a chamber and aerosolized the virus. Again, that does not reflect reality. 
And what do you mean when you say aerosolized? Because tell us the difference between aerosolization and droplets. Okay, good. Really key principle. Aerosolized virus is um, small amounts of virus without the large mucus um, drops that are, are often carrying it. That can float and stay in the air for very long periods of time. That generally happens with what are called aerosolizing producing procedures. For example, when you're intubating somebody or they're having a bronchoscopy or something like that. The, the common method that is uh, causing transmitted virus in, in the population is large respiratory droplets. These are the coughs and the sneezes, um, where you have virus carried on mucus droplets. You can actually see the droplets. You may not be able to see them. Against the backdrop, you can see them. Okay. Um, but but they, they do not float in the air, and they drop quickly down to the ground. That's why the social distancing, ideally, of 6 to 10 feet works best. Now, is that also why um, measles is such so much uh, more likely to be spread because it will stay in an aerosol in the air in the air and not just on droplets? Absolutely. And in fact, you know, if the three of us were susceptible to measles and we walked into a room where somebody with measles had been eight hours ago, likely all three of us would get that disease. Now, this this idea of of persistence on surfaces. So what the other 22 studies have shown and the recent look at the Diamond Princess cruise ship is they found virus 17 days after that cruise ship had been emptied. We don't know if it was viable virus, meaning virus that could still infect you. But this is consistent with what a variety of studies have shown, is that if you have somebody coughing, sneezing, symptomatic um, COVID-19, you can can, uh, detect this on the surfaces of that room. Now, it's exquisitely sensitive to the proper disinfecting fluid that you would use to clean a room, whether it's a dilute bleach or uh, other approved disinfectant. So, so it's a it's a key strategy in dealing with this. Uh, because it is thought that this virus started in animals and then crossed over to humans, our next question wants to know: Can our pets get the virus and then transmit it to other people? Dogs, uh, in particular, do have coronaviruses, but not the type that infect humans. At least, not commonly. Dogs actually have a coronavirus vaccine. Uh, that that is made for them. In terms of this coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, that virus is not carried by our pets. We are not infecting our pets, and our pets are not infecting us. However, out of an abundance of caution, CDC did release a statement saying that if you have uh, symptomatic COVID-19, you don't have to quarantine yourself from your pet. But don't let the pet lick your face. Don't share your food, uh, et cetera. Um, not because there's data suggesting risk, but out of caution. All right. Lassie sounds pretty safe. <laughs> yeah. uh, all right. Next question. Can I get infected through a cut or open wound? There, there is no evidence of this being transmitted 
in that way, nor are you going to in some way absorb the virus through your skin. This is why hand washing and sanitizing works so well. We're getting used to sheltering at home, so this question uh, has to has to do with context. What is next? What's the most likely scenario that is a, lies ahead of us? I, I think what we're going to see is um, more institution of what we've seen around the world, where uh, countries and cities didn't take this as seriously as they should had a major eruption in the number of cases, and then, just to use a term, locked it down, and in two weeks started to see diminution in cases. A good example in the American context is New Rochelle, New York, where they actually made it a containment area, about one mile square is my understanding, and they've seen a precipitous fall in cases. took, guess what, two weeks for that to happen. But it, but it works. I think we're going to start to see that in other areas of the U.S. as this moves away from the two coasts and more and more into the center of the U.S. So here's a listener who is obviously listening closely. <laughs> she says, two weeks ago, you advised us to use contextually appropriate levels of protection. Explain again what that means and does it still apply? Yeah. It, it not only applies, but it is a dynamic or moving target based on the context. So first, a simple analogy, and then we'll apply it. Um, if you live in a safe area of the country where I do, Rochester, Minnesota, um, when I go to bed at night, I lock the front and back door, layer one. I uh, close my first floor windows, layer two, and I flip an outside light on, layer three. That's all I need. If I live in a, in a more difficult area of the nation, I might add layer four, an alarm system, layer five, window bars, maybe layer six, a panic button. You, you get the idea. So what does that mean for us in the, in the U.S.? Well, again, are you in a high-risk or a low-risk situation? And, and that can change over time. Low-risk situation, telework if you can, social distancing, being sure your hands are clean. Layers two and three, nobody comes in your home without hand sanitizing. Layer four, nobody comes into your home, uh, period, and, unless it's absolutely necessary. And, and you just keep layering things on like that based on your particular context, based on the uh, transmission dynamics in your area, recognizing they lag by two weeks or so. So you're sticking with that as your motto? You don't have a new one? Correct. Well, the only new one I have is, is more cultural, and that is, and, and we're beginning to see this, you know, St. Paul Ramsey Hospital up in the Twin Cities, um, among their greatest number of ER visits is not COVID-19. It's mental health issues. And my motto is we really have to turn from a me culture to a we culture. And you see that in a, a grassroots route healthcare providers movement where you see them in the hospital with a sign saying, I'm staying here, you stay home. If it's every man for himself, we will do poorly as history shows in pandemics. I'm to take care of my neighbor. I'm to take care of my community. I'm to help at any level that I can. And if we all do that, 
And if we all take care of each other, we will do better together. All right. It's not me, it's we. All right. Yeah. Next question. Do surgical masks help or not? Not only do surgical masks help, but a mask of almost anything helps. Now, the, the original reason that CDC and other organizations said don't wear masks is because they wanted to preserve those for frontline healthcare workers. But you can have an effective mask out of a, a folded over bandana or handkerchief. The way it helps is in this regard. It decreases the risk that you'll breathe in these respiratory droplets that somebody else may have coughed, coughed or sneezed, and now you're breathing. And it is a reminder to not put your fingers in your eyes, nose, or mouth. So from that perspective, it is protective. Now, it can't do anything against aerosolized virus, but that's probably not the primary mode of transmission here. Again, I think because they, were, they didn't want people to go out and buy all the N95 and surgical masks because they were needed for healthcare workers. I think that was the motivation behind that, not hmm. science saying that okay. it doesn't help. Would right. you like to comment on the cure being worse than the disease thinking? <laughs> yeah, I, I think this really gets to cultural and personal values. What price a life? Um, how much economic disruption for how long can we take? What does it mean, particularly for the most vulnerable members of our society who are often living paycheck to paycheck? This is where government comes in. A government is to do for the people what they cannot do for themselves. I'm fine. I don't need anything. But I know that there are neighbors of mine that do need help, and we help them. How, how far do you go with it and how do you balance it? I think it is a phased approach. You wait till the curve bends. You wait till you start seeing a, a, a great diminution in cases. And then you wait two weeks more and you begin to loosen restrictions, first with young people, because they're, while they can still on occasion have severe disease, they are not dying of it. And we watch and wait. We do it carefully, the same way you might think of sort of the canary in the mind uh, uh, mindset of, you know, you don't expose everybody at once and open up all the schools and colleges. and You do it phased. All right. Isn't it okay for people with no symptoms or who have tested negative to go back to work? Yeah, difficult, difficult question. The no symptoms, you actually don't have any information. Uh, it is apparent that asymptomatic transmission, that is, you have no symptoms but are still carrying the virus and can transmit it to somebody else, does occur. The more people you congregate in a building, in a room, in an area, the greater the risk that you re-spark that pandemic and start having cases again. So it, it's really important that we know that. The other thing that's really important is that we we began to have very rapid tests to tell us whether somebody is immune, even if it's in the short term, so that they can go back to work, in, in particularly in essential jobs. They can be frontline healthcare workers and responders. If I have a sick family member, can I go to work or should I stay home? You should stay home. You are, you are risking other people by transmitting that disease 
Uh, and I would say that if you're not an essential uh, worker, then, then you need to be at home. All right, uh, next question. The U.S. and South Korea apparently had their first detected case of COVID-19 on the same day, but it appears they have fl- they have flattened the curve and started the 14-day timer. What can we learn from what and how they have handled the outbreak? Yeah, well, the key thing in this, and I, I know people bring up, well, you know, SARS in, in 2002 wasn't like this. That was different. There was not asymptomatic transmission. What drives this is that we do have people transmitting the disease who don't know they have it. And so when, if you really, you have two choices in stopping this pandemic, and there are only two absent antivirals and vaccines. You either get everybody infected, in which case you will have millions in the hospital, and, lo- and, and, and lose tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of people to the disease, or you shut things down now. Both are disruptive. Both have pros or cons. Both are value judgments about what to do. But if the goal is stop widespread transmission, you say everything that isn't essential or that is not a part of national security, uh, supply chains, hospital workers, et cetera, you telework. We are out of time, basically, (laughs) but I have one last question because I've been getting this uh, nonstop for the last 36 hours, and it's about ibuprofen. Um, Mm -hmm. What do we know about ibuprofen's safety? Yeah, so we know a lot about ibuprofen's safety, though not in the context of this particular infection. So ibuprofen, regardless of uh, uh, context, is a drug that can cause water and salt retention. It can elevate blood pressure, and it can cause bleeding as well as kidney uh, dysfunction. Now you take a drug like that into somebody with a viral infection. Does it help or harm? I think despite the warnings of WHO and the government of France, I think most of us as scientists recognize there really is not any solid scientific data saying that that represents a unique risk in COVID-19. Now, having said that, the only reason to take a drug like that is for fever reduction, muscle aches and pain, use acetaminophen, far safer. All right. Well, Dr. Greg Poland, infectious disease expert, vaccine expert, thanks so much again for answering all of our listeners' questions on the COVID-19 outbreak. Um, We'll uh, be talking to you again soon. We look forward to that, but hopefully we'll reach the apex of number of cases pretty soon and number of deaths, and we'll start to go down on the other side of the curve. We all hope so, yes. Thank you, Dr. Poland. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic Q&A podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well. We hope you'll offer a review of this and other episodes when the option is available. Comments and questions can also be sent to Mayo Clinic News Network at mayo.edu.